Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Rob Palanti is a former NCAA Division I and pro hockey player, a successful executive who narrowly escaped death after a life-threatening injury. Supercharged with a newfound purpose, he now uses his experience to teach mental fitness to high-performance athletes both on and off the field. Welcome to the Idealand Podcast, Rob. It's so awesome to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I am doing uh, actually better than pretty good. It's been a busy day. I like when my days are busy. Um, I just, I'm just west of Toronto up in Canada. So when the sun is shining and the, uh, the temperatures are on the plus side, that's a good day. You know, what you're doing is amazing. So the mindset coaching and the results you seem to be getting, the results for yourself and the people you're helping are awesome. But there's something else with this. With you specifically, it seemed like you've lived like three different lives. And I wanted to understand how you got to what you're doing now. And if you could describe your journey, because that's what seems so inspiring to me. And I think will inspire other people as well. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, I think three is being modest. It's probably more like eight or nine lives. And I'm, oh, let's I'm go through them. fortunate to still be here. <laughs> so I grew up just, just outside of Toronto in a little area called Mississauga. It's not so little anymore. It's actually one of the largest suburbs just west of the city. Being a Canadian kid was obviously intrigued by hockey. My father was an athlete growing up. Um, He played hockey, he played football. He had an opportunity to potentially try out for the the Canadian track team. So not bad for first generation Italian growing up in the city, right? (laughs) Did your dad have something to prove or what? He's just, I'm gonna go all out. No, this is is what I had to deal with, right? So my dad was multi, (laughs) multi talented athlete and uh, successful successful corporate business person. But he always instilled that kind of faith into both myself and I have a younger brother, two years younger. So we were always involved in sports. And I took to hockey, my brother took to hockey, and we excelled at the sport. I I played at the highest levels of minor hockey in the city. Um, I had an opportunity to play junior hockey, um, which afforded me the opportunity to get a scholarship. I went down to Michigan Tech on a Division I hockey scholarship. Um, and, And so this is where part of my story starts to dissect a little bit, because I had always been quote unquote, the guy coming out of the city, being one of the most valuable players on the team. And in my mind, I was projected right to the NHL. Did you have a doubt? There was never a doubt in my mind that I wasn't going to play in the NHL. Can I just take a second to pause on that little journey? Because you went through that really quickly, like it was no big deal. Even though when you think about it, Canada's like a hockey machine. It churns out incredible players. So I'm just going to assume that going through that process means there's a ton of other people who you're better than. How did you do that? <laughs> just... Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's one that, that I, I get the opportunity to explore with young athletes now. I, I think it, if I'm able to have use hindsight as 2020, I was able to, at that point, that's all I wanted to do as a kid. Different than today, like I'm 51 years old. So, you know, I didn't have a cell phone until I was 25. We didn't play video games growing up. My, my kids asked me today, well, what did you do? I said, well, we went outside and that's what we did, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so I was just, I loved the game of hockey. I just loved it. And it, being a Canadian kid and, and growing up in the suburbs at the time, the area wasn't fully mature. So we had outdoor rinks that were just frozen 
areas of water that were around the house. So that's where we would go. And parents would drag their hoses out from their backyards and, and they would make sure that they were flooded at night and ready to go for us in the morning. So you really learn to just play the game. And my father was a big influence and having him sort of guide me through my minor hockey career. I had coaches and then I had my dad, right? And he was never the typical hockey parent. Yeah. Screaming in the stands. If you ever heard his voice, it was usually for one reason. It was because he didn't think you were giving an effort. And so take skill out of it. Take all of the other tangibles out of it. His biggest thing was go out and give your best. Don't worry about mistakes. And, and so I had that as my upbringing as a young athlete. So I wasn't worried about the mistakes. And I just knew that as long as I went out and I tried hard, I was going to get better. And I could see that I was just as good or better than most of the kids. I was a yeah. good skater. I handled the puck well. In my early years, I was just as big, if not bigger, than most of the kids. That changed yeah. at about 14 because I hadn't gone through my growth spurt yet. So it was my first taste of adversity where I was playing at a triple-A level of minor hockey. I got yeah. to 14. I had been the captain and assistant captain on, a, on one of the best teams in the city for four years. And I got cut going into a very crucial year. They call it, uh, I guess it's called U14 right now, but it used to be mm -hmm. called Bantam. And uh, that's really where the scouts and people start to take a look at you at about 14 years old, if you're not a prodigy. And, and I played with some prodigies. I played with some guys that are in the Hockey Hall of Fame now that came out of that era. But I knew that I was talented enough to keep playing. And so that just kept me focused on going to the next level and the next level. And it almost got to the point where I just expected I was going to go to the next level because of the progress I was making. And I got drafted to junior at a very high in the third round. Probably should have went a little bit higher. But the way it works for in Canada, even in the U.S., you have to make a decision to play junior, major junior A which is considered quasi-professional, or you, you have to wait another year until you can get an offer to play NCAA hockey. And because they're, they offset, you have to make a decision whether you're going to attend camp or not. And if you go to a, a junior camp for more than 48 hours, you forfeit your eligibility to play at a school. So I got drafted by a team way up in Northern Ontario and they weren't very good. And I promised my father, if I wasn't drafted by a team closer by that was a contender, I would play a year of what was called junior B and see what scholarship offers. So I did that and I got offered five or six different scholarships. And I wind up choosing to go to a school that my father was an alumni at. So he had gone to Michigan Tech also. He played there, won the very first NCAA championship, and he held a record for most points by a freshman defenseman. So again, I'm just living in his shoes. Did you feel like that at the time when you were doing that? Or was it just like you liked the praise? The challenge, I'm like, yeah, I'm going after it. You know, dad, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to beat yeah. your records. And um, uh, Did you? Uh, what it could have should have, you know, <laughs> it, I don't know if you can swear on your podcast or not. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't trust people but, don't swear. So don't you know, worry. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a saying, you know, if the queen had balls, she'd be king. Right. So I, I went to Michigan Tech and I found myself. I was on campus. I was a true freshman uh, just coming up on my 18th birthday. Excited to be there. You know, my head was, you know, swollen that I, I had gotten a scholarship ahead of guys that were already playing a year or two ahead of me. And here here I was and I was at a school that my dad went to and I was going to be this legacy and everything was going to be awesome. 
yeah. three days on campus. I go to a frat party with some of the other guys from the team. And now I look, look around and I'm indulging in some adult beverages and lost track of time. It's coming up on about two o'clock in the morning and I'm shooting pool with a guy that went on to win a Stanley Cup and play in the NHL, a gentleman by the name of Randy McKay. And yeah. uh, so Randy was a senior. I was a freshman and somebody bumps into him at the pool table. Next thing you know, he's grabbing me. He goes, come on, kid, we're going outside. We walk outside and it's him and I, the rest of the guys on the team are gone. We fight five guys in a parking lot. I break my hand. You're kidding. Welcome to the NCAA. <laughs> I had not even, we had not even started training camp, hadn't even stepped on the ice. So I tried to mask that I had a broken hand for about three or four days into training camp. And it was only so long I could do it. I had a boxer's fracture in my hand. The bone was going to pop through. I had to go to the hospital and have it taken care of. The truth came out. Boom, Rob's in the doghouse. And so I wind up only playing six games my freshman year, and I wind up getting redshirted. And were they, it, did not, it did not sit well with the coach, as you can imagine. Were they mad that you didn't tell them up front or that you got in the situation in the first place? I think it was a combination of both. And if I look back at, at my 17, 18-year-old self now, I'd say, hey, yeah. you, you know what? You can never go wrong telling the truth. And whatever happens, you can deal with the consequences. As a kid, you don't know. You think, okay, well, I'm going to try to mask this, and I know I can push through it. I didn't realize how badly my hand was broken. And then when I did go and show the trainers, they were like, you're, that's, that's, you're going to have that reset, maybe surgery. We don't know what happened. Because this didn't happen in the weight room, right? So the truth came out. Right. And, you know, I think... Being the young player that I wasn't mentally or physically prepared for that type of adversity at that point in my career, right? That's something yeah. I hear athletes say a lot is when they're going through the process of uh, maturing. It's a really hard process because they don't get a lot of choice. It's like this very linear path. They're making very few choices and everyone else is telling them what to do. And it's like, hey, kid, just do this thing, do it really well, and you're going to be fine. You'll get to this end point. Is that what it felt like? It, that's that's exactly what it felt like, Ravi. And to your point, why I'm doing what I'm doing, if I kind of jump ahead and then I'll come back, yeah. but why yeah. I'm doing what I'm doing right now is because there was nobody at that time, at that level, to talk to about what was going on up here in my head. Uh, and, and this six inches that sits between your brain is the most powerful muscle that we have in our body. And if we don't learn how to train and develop that muscle in so many different ways, then we're not giving ourselves the opportunity to succeed. So at that point now, I'm faced with this adversity. I'm not a regular in the lineup. I come back from my red shirt freshman year, which is supposed to be my sophomore year. I'm in the lineup. I'm out of the lineup. I'm doing all the things that I, I believe I was supposed to be doing, right? And, and in typical U.S. college fashion, there's, there's a lot of kids on the team. I happen to be one that was on a full scholarship. I guess I assumed I should be playing. Coaches thought otherwise. But when I looked around, then I started to do, well, I'm better than him, and I'm better than him. And whether I was or I wasn't, I kept telling myself that I was. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when I wasn't in the lineup, when they because what they would do in hockey was you practice all week, you know, and then they'd post the lineup on on uh, Friday morning after our skate. And you come off the ice and you check the lineup to see if you're in the lineup for the weekend. 
Yeah. And if your name's not there, which mine wasn't a lot of times, you, you played in what we called the afternoon hockey league, which was extra reps on the ice to keep the guys in condition so right. that when they did go back in, they were ready to go. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in the afternoon hockey league. and and But I, I'd go back at night questioning, what was I not doing? Right. And, and I yeah. started to point the finger. I started to feel sorry for myself. And I went into a very dark place. Right. And I can look back on that now and not having the mental tools to be able to coach myself through it or having somebody there to talk to about it. Because when I did approach the coaches, what they would say is, Rob, be patient and work hard. Oh, OK, what, what part of that am I not doing? But that's the most you would get, yeah. right? What the hell does that mean? You tell an 18-year-old, be patient and work hard. Okay, okay, coach. But what does that mean, right? And I'm able to know what that is now. I'm able to coach kids through that now. I'm able to help them not step on, you know, step on the landmines that, that I stepped on. And I think that's all part of life's and life's experiences. There are some young guys that I'm, I'm learning have the opportunity or have the mindset to work themselves through that. I wasn't one of those guys. I had all the talent, but I didn't have the mental skills, right? And so yeah. now I realize that, you know, talent will get you in the game, consistency gets you paid. Yeah, I, I can relate to that in an academic level. I know I wasn't an athlete, but it didn't really even value it that much like I do now, right? It's very different now because those two things that we separate out it's stupid that we separate that out as as if like we're some machine and the soul exists up here. It's, it's one dynamical system, right? Uh, that all works together. It's weird because, you know, the heuristic that worked for you to get you to that point was, hey, tell myself I'm better, believe I'm better, believe in myself and go do these things. And then you're put in a situation where you're like, that heuristic isn't working anymore. You're like, wait, I'm doing the same thing I did before to get the results. Now those results aren't coming and now I'm doing this extra work and now the coach is always annoyed at me. <laughs> and you're like, someone helped me through this, like you said, minefield. I like that analogy. What had to give I and mean, what changed? Yeah, so so at that point, nothing changed. I did not, you know, have the, I just kept pursuing through what I call as I lumbered through just what I thought was hard work. And what I come to realize now is that it's not just about the physical work you got to put in, it's the mental work you have to put in. It's the things that you're thinking about and the actions you put behind the things you think about, right? So it's not just saying, I want to be successful, but was I doing the extra work? Was I giving myself the opportunity to be successful? You know, what I was, I took it as, I took the fact that I wasn't playing personally and I, resented the coaches i hated going to the rink and as soon as practice was over i couldn't wait to get off the ice those are not things that are going to produce success but there was nobody there to tell me different right and you know you think intuitively that oh you should know these things but you don't as an 18 19 year old kid who's all of a sudden gone from this trajectory which is straight up to a plateau and now you're on a downslope and now you're you're living in this i was living in this resentment i'd come back to my dorm or my room at night and after i moved off campus and i started to isolate myself from the other guys because now i started questioning well i used to think i was good enough mm -hmm. but maybe i'm not good enough anymore right and i had a hard time relating to the other guys that were on scholarship or canadians or americans and saying well are they better than me and I started to question myself and that took a toll on me 
And, and I went back for another year. And my my junior year, I was actually I played every game up until Christmas. Thought this was going to be my breakout year. I started to mature a little bit more physically, and I felt good. I trained hard in the off season, and I came back and up until Christmas. And then every year at Christmas time, they had what was called the uh, the Great Lakes Invitational Tournament. So there was Michigan Tech, University of Michigan, Michigan State, and then there was one other team that would get invited, and we played at what was then Joe Louis Arena. Right, it's the Detroit Little Caesars Arena now, which is way nicer than the one we played in. But but it was it was awesome because yeah. you get you know seventeen eighteen thousand people coming to the games. You know all the scouts are going to be there. It was an opportunity for me that I thought this is my opportunity to shine. We get to Detroit, we practice our first skate. I come off the ice and I'm not in the lineup, and I'm like okay. Is this like, is he playing games with me now? So now my mind starts creeping back into my past and I start having those emotions that were tied to those events from my past. And I could talk about that in a whole other light now, but now, okay, now I got a little bitter taste in my mouth. I don't say anything. I come back out. The guys play the first game. I go, there's no way he can leave me out. I played every game. I'm contributing. I have to be in this. And you only get two games, right? You get a round robin game and then you either win or lose or you're in the finals or the, or, or the, the silver medal game or the bronze medal game. Come out for our morning skate. We got 40 pound weight vests on. We did a, just a 40 minute skate in the morning. Look at the list. I'm not in the lineup again. And and to my discredit, my emotion got the best of me. Snap, took the weight vest off, walked in the room, fired it at the coach, and I told him I'm done. I go, you, you know, I am done with you fucking with me. I'm done with you playing God. I'm out. How did it feel and when you did that? Awful. I felt terrible. For the moment, I felt yeah. relieved. Yeah. But as soon as that those words left my mouth, I knew I was, I, I was, there was no going back. So watched yeah. the game, rode the bus back to, to up to way up to Houghton, Michigan, which is, you know, if you know Michigan and how they do the, the map with the hands, it's like way up, way, yeah. it's two and a half hours north of Sault Ste. Marie. It was a long bus ride back. <laughs> and I got back, I packed my stuff and I left. And a month later, the coach got fired. <laughs> So what was the fallout? Who, how did you decompress after this? Yeah, it took a long time. Um, I felt like I needed a fresh start. I did try and go back, but then I thought about it and I said, you know, maybe that's not the right environment for me. So I came back and, and I wind up going to a Canadian university, finished school out on the East Coast in Nova Scotia, Canada. I went to a school called Acadia. Played there for two years, played in the national finals for the Canadian universities had some looks, got some ice time, invited to five NHL camps. So that was in 91. So I went to the Minnesota North Stars. They, they wind up moving to Dallas, but that's how old I am. I, I went to their camp in 92, had a good camp, but I went in, I was undrafted because I missed my draft year because my freshman year, I broke my hand. So I wasn't in the lineup, dropped off of the face of the earth, basically in front of the scouts, had a little bit of, of visibility at the end of my career, too old to be drafted, got invited as a free agent, walked on and had a great camp. They, they didn't have me under contract. They sent me down to their IHL affiliate, which was their American league team or their international league team at the time, which was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I had a good camp there, played a few exhibition games. Again, not under contract. It was the waiting game. So then I got sent from, I went down to the next level league, 
which they call the East Coast League. And I played there and I played there for the next couple of years. And I got, the problem was I got pigeonholed into a role because I was a bigger guy. Uh, I had a couple of fights in training camp against some other noted tough guys. And, and then there you go. And I'm just fascinated by this. You you uh, get pigeonholed very quickly. Well, this is, and it's just not, this isn't badminton, right? I mean, this is ice hockey. I mean, this is like an alpha, this is like an alpha male breeding ground. So it's like, I I just feel like people get triggered pretty quickly. Would that be accurate? I mean, like no one wants to back down in this environment, right? That's just. I'll tell you how quickly it got triggered. My very first pro camp back then we used to do two a days. So you do an hour and a half on ice training, just conditioning stuff. And then in the afternoon you'd scrimmage. The first shift of the afternoon scrimmage of my very first pro camp, I was on the ice, puck goes in my corner, I go to pick it up as a defenseman, I get nailed from behind, I turn around, guy's already got his gloves off, welcome to your first NHL pro camp, my gloves go <laughs> off, and here we, and I'm in, like, I'm, I've been on the ice for like 20 seconds, and I'm already in my first fight, and I did okay. And that's where I got, you know, I fought a guy who was a tough guy for three years. Had already been in the league. And I held my own against him, you know. And, and So is this, is my, this just a rite of passage? my bottom lip, and I got really? stitched and went back out and finished the game. But, yeah, now all of a sudden, oh, who's this big kid, right? So this is just par for the course. And this is just it, indoctrination. Yeah. It, yeah, this is part of it, right? And, and it, part of it is a test, and part of it is the guys fighting for position. If you're, if you're a bubble player and you're not a contracted player or you're coming in and your role is is what it supposed what you know what it might be as a tough guy or a fighter then you have to do what you got to do to stay and and so now I've been pigeonholed into this role. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of fighting experience, but I never really backed down. Uh, you know, you call it being an, an alpha sport. Everybody's tough at that level, right? And so, you, you know, you certainly don't want to back down. At the very least, you want to stand in and stand your ground. And because it's part of the game of hockey, I always, you know, I did partake in it. But as, as, as a minor hockey player, there's only so much you're going to do with a full cage and a mask on and same college hockey doesn't allow it. So that was really my first taste. And now as I got sent down and traded a couple of times, this became the identity of the player that they wanted. And I told myself, okay, I will do this if it's going to continue to get me paid and give me the opportunity to get back up. Well, three, four years go by of doing that and you get tired of doing that, you know. And when your role as what you thought was a skilled hockey player becomes now one where you're just getting tapped on the shoulder to go and line up and do a job, it, it, it it's not fun anymore. Yeah, well, um, I was just going to ask you, what was your, like, love of the game of hockey at that point? Did you still love it, you know, like playing on those ice rinks when you were a kid? I mean, obviously it's going to be different. But yeah. what was your passion level for just the actual competition? You know, at, for the first couple of years, I didn't mind it, to be honest, right? And and I thought, okay, this is what's expected of me. But then it was, you know, okay, I, I remember going to a coach. I was playing uh, in the minors in Nashville before they had an NHL team. And the coach had come down from, he had been a player in the NHL. His name was Nick Fatio, and he was from Stanton Island. He was a boxer growing up played in the NHL with the Rangers and Hartford at the time and and Calgary. And, you know, he liked the way I played, but I went to him one day and I said, Hey Nick, I can do more than fight. And uh, the next morning he traded me. Wow. So it, it, what it, what I was learning was it was becoming less of a sport and more of a business. Yeah. And, and I started to fall out of love with the game. 
and I probably wasn't as committed to the success that a lot of guys were to get to the next level because I used that pain and I would empty it out into a bottle. It just got to the point where I, I did not enjoy playing anymore and I said, okay, it's time to use this education and take it out into the real world now and, and see what I can do. I didn't hate the game. I hated what it what I allowed myself to become because of the game, if you understand. Um, but when I walked away, I did not go to a rink or put on a pair of skates for about three years. I really? just needed a break from the game. And then I got into the corporate world and I spent all, it, here's the ironic part is I spent all my life trying to be known as a hockey player. And now I'm in the corporate world trying to not be known as a hockey player. I wanted to be known for what I actually was able to deliver as a salesperson or a manager or a vice president as I, my career went on. And so right. I fought the stigma, but hockey opened the doors for me because a lot of times it was, Oh, Rob was this ex hockey player. Oh, Hey, come on in. So I would use it yeah. to my advantage, but then I would try to, right. Because I wanted them to take me serious for, you know, the product or service that I was selling or representing or the people I was representing. And so that was, you know, it was, it was years of trying to unravel that Jersey personality to become <laughs> the corporate person. Right? Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a stamp in your passport and it's like, what yeah. qualities did people automatically associate it with it? I can imagine what they would be, but I'm just curious to hear from your standpoint. You're like, okay, here we go. I'm the hockey yeah. player coming in. They must think I'm A, B, and C. Did that work oh, yeah. to your favor? A lot of times it, it did open doors, as I mentioned, but then sometimes it would, it could become a distraction because we'd be sitting in a boardroom and, and people want me to tell stories from my past. And I get it there, you know, and I did, trust me, I was no household name. I, you know, I had a yeah. cup of tea and uh, a couple of years in the minors and that was about as good as it got. I wasn't riding the corporate jets, the, you know, that the way the guys are today. I was the guy on the bus down in the minor leagues, but I had, you know, I had a lot of great memories, a lot of great stories. I knew a lot of people so I could, you know, use some of those stories to maybe lighten the conversation in the boardroom and allow people to, you know, start to interact. So I knew that it was something that I could use to my advantage. But to your point, as you said, there were points where I'd go, okay, what story am I going to tell them today? Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and, it's, uh, well, you're bringing something into their lives that either they thought about, admire, or, you know, they're living vicariously through through what yeah. you're doing, right? And that's kind of cool. Yeah. So you transitioned from this, uh, I mean, a very colorful and interesting experience that very few people have had, for sure, to this corporate life. So what was this corporate life like? Yeah, um, you know, again, things just sort of went very well for me. Um, it was sort of a, a, you know, a, a trend in my life where once I committed to something and, and uh, I, I still hold by this truth, if, if I'm in, I'm all in. And that's a, it's a tagline I use in my program now. You're either all in or you're not, right? And so if I'm all in, I'm all in. And I was a loyal employee. And, and you know, if I believed in the product and um, I, I was a hard worker, so I brought those skills that I learned on the ice to the corporate world. And I was always hungry for more. I wanted more. I wanted more. So I wasn't happy just being successful at sales. I wanted to be a sales manager. So I got that. And then I had teams. And then so I helped build teams. And I tried to instill some of those characteristics that I had into 
the the people that I was that that were on my team. Always wanted to over succeed and over deliver, but I was very careful about how I did it because I never wanted to over promise. And you know, I think there's a delicate balance between being open, honest, and realistic about what your goals are and being able to deliver on those rather than saying, hey, I'm going to go and knock this out of the park and then come in under the radar. So, so it, and I think a lot of that just goes to experience, understanding who your audience is, knowing the, the opportunity that you have with the product or service you're offering and, and being able to properly position it. I, I also believe that what part of my success was the ability to build relationships. Once I had an opportunity to get out in front of a person, then I knew that I would be able to shine and my personality would eventually win that person over and I could build that relationship. When you think about it, there's a gazillion widgets that all do the same thing, right? And this is what I learned and I told yeah. my sales guys is you got to be able to sell yourself and build that relationship because there's your widget, there's our competitors, there's a hundred of these things that, you know, all do the same thing. People aren't necessarily buying the widget, they're buying you. And if you can't sell yourself, forget how many, what the widget does or doesn't do. And I used to have young sales guys come in and they, they would study the brochures and they knew the product inside out and, and they would call, they would do what I call show up and throw up. Right. They, they hadn't even <laughs> shaken the, the, they hadn't even shaken the customer's hand and introduced people in the room and they're already reciting speeds and feeds and all the, all of the fantastic things that are going to save the customer money. And they haven't asked a single question about the customer or his business, or why we're even here. And to me, those are the things that start to establish credibility and relationship. And, and so I was very good at that. And a lot of times I'd have meetings and, and I might talk about the product in the last 10 or 15 minutes, but it was building the rapport and knowing, you know, when you walk into a room and, and seeing things that you can relate, that you can bring into a conversation, become people rather than a salesperson and a buyer. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like you were able to walk that tightrope and that balance that you talked about, which is selling and then overselling people by you. Yeah. That's something that seems like you have natural talent for and that you cultivated actively. Is that something that, uh, well, I guess I think a lot of people think, is this teachable, right? This is what they're asking, especially in sales. I think sales is, the, is definitely the pressure test area for that kind of skill set. Is this something that you yeah. could see and help other people cultivate through their careers? Yeah, and I thought that 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 I could do that. That's I think that's why I was able to spend you know twenty plus years in corporate and you know move up the corporate ladder into uh, into leadership and management positions. Is I was able to I, I could see I, I got very good at being able to read people and understand what their strengths and, and their weaknesses were. Right, because we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, and I believe that you can be successful and not be the smartest guy in the room by surrounding yourself with smart people that can fill in the gaps. And and so what I tried to do was make sure that my teams were very rounded in a sense that um, the different personalities were able to complement the solutions that we were offering. You know, we had guys that were smart on the engine 
engineering side, when to bring them in. You got your lead point sales guys that could, they could spend their day on the phone and get appointments. You got other guys that you're going to bring in and it, they're, they're good at pitching a product along with a, a sales engineer. And then you might have somebody like myself or another senior person come in and work with them in tandem and the engineers on the close of the product. I worked in the tech space. So I was in transportation tech, mobility, mobile apps. I worked with the, the Sprints, Verizons and AT&Ts for 20 plus years. I understood the way that the infrastructure of communications were laid out. So I was kind of dangerous a little bit technically, but I always made sure that I had smarter people than me to, to be able to fill in the gaps when it when they were bringing their smart guys to the table. Yeah, I've been in that situation before. You got to come in with your arm. You got to have your ammunition accounted for sure, and ready, for sure. right? So yeah. while you were doing this, and that's a long time, I mean, 20 years, the major phase of your yeah. life. How were you doing with the other parts of your life that were important to you? Or how did you balance you, the other parts of you that you were trying to cultivate or maintain, like family, yeah, hobbies, stuff like that? It's a, it's a good question. So I, I wind up getting married and uh, had two kids. Um, you know, we talk about, you, you use a word balance. And I don't know if I believe that there is balance, right? Because I think there is no such thing as a 50-50. And, and what I've learned in my 51 years is some days it's 60-40, other days it's 70-30, and you could be on either end of that scale. Um, up until that point, I was leading a very myopic life. It was all about me and, you know, and my success and me moving forward. And, you know, um, I kind of, and, and without sounding rude, like I'm, I'm not married anymore. Um, I have a good relationship with my ex-wife, but she wasn't the type of person that was going to be able to push me to the next level. Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't really challenge me. And I think after a while, we just grew apart. And and when we did, I had, I had uh, two young kids and, and I traveled, I pretty much jumped on a plane Monday and came home Friday. So I was gone a lot. And yeah. I focused more on me, although I, you know, I was coaching my son's hockey team and, you know, I tried to make myself as available as possible because I didn't want to be an absent father because my father was always there and he was also a traveling salesman in the corporate world. He wasn't always there, but he was there enough. And I didn't yeah. want to be that absent dad either. And, and um, from an Italian community, and I, I know your community, it's family is so important, right? It's a base yeah. and it's a nucleus for who we are. And and I wanted to make sure that I was at least offering that to my kids. And well, my wife I just, and I, we just grew apart. I think that needs to be talked about more too. I, I just, for, especially for men. I feel like women obviously have like very significant struggles with how they balance their career and, and childbearing, child rearing, the other things they want to do. But I think men also have that because it's easy to slip into a mode where you're just going on full afterburner and you're just going see target, destroy, next target, launch missile, yeah. destroy. And I feel like that's oh, yeah. kind yeah, of yeah. what you're describing. You're like, hey, yeah. this client, we can go get that. Here's what we got to do. Next client, here's let's go get that account. Let's yeah. go push. Oh, yeah, there's a whole list of yeah, you're constantly in the sales world and especially in corporate when, when, and you're in sales, you're only as good as your last sale. So just like in hockey, you're only as good as your last shift or in any sport. So the mentality 
of, okay, that's over, move on, that's over, move on. There was always had to be this cycle of, of trying to get to the next level. And I always competed. And I think that compete level that I had as an athlete is what I brought to the corporate world because I'd look, even when I came in my first few years in sales, I'd look at the top sales guys and I go, what do I got to do to be them? And then I would try to push myself to be them. And I was always measuring myself against them. What I wasn't measuring myself was what was it like to be the best dad? What was it like to be the best husband? And I discounted that side of my life for a number of years, which is probably why I'm not married anymore. Uh, I afforded her a lifestyle where she didn't have to work, but it also meant sacrificing me. And I remember her one time saying, well, why can't you just have a nine to five job, you know, Joe down the street? And I said, I will never have a nine to five job. It's not who I am. I was just going to ask you that exact question. I was, I was just going to ask you, how does that feel to even say it? Because you're just like, that's so disgusting to you, isn't it? The, that idea. It, it's Look, it, I respect that. And I think we're yeah. all individual people and we all have certain things that we have to bring to the table, which is what makes this world go around. My father always said, and, and being an Italian and, and my grandparents being the first generation to come over here, they were ditch diggers, right? My father always said, he goes, every world needs a ditch digger. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're digging ditches or building the buildings, be the best that you can be, right? But understand where your strengths and, you know, who you are as a person. And and a lot of this didn't make sense until, I, you know, I, I reached my, my mid-40s. And I just kept plowing through, through with that, that compete and I've got to get better and, and never being satisfied. Um, and, and part of that was not taking the time to be present in the moment, which, you know, there's so much to be said for that today is just stopping, appreciating the moment, what's going on around you. Just like, you know, this, this interview that you and I are having right now, um, yeah. you know, old me would be seeing my phone over here lighting up, going off and I'd want to answer it and, and, you know, take that and start thinking about what's happening, you know, in the next 20 minutes or the next, it, it doesn't matter anymore. The most important, important thing is giving attention to where you're at in the moment and if you're doing those things and you're consciously uh, about that the rest will take care of itself right but as a young person what I learned at a later time was I was trying to prepare myself for those things and get ahead to them and I was and I wasn't focusing on the things that were going on right in front of me yeah, it's like every once in a so, while you got to just roll the window down the car and actually smell the air that you know the environment you're driving through. I, I yeah. I'm still learning this. You want to hear a really weird aside story that's related to hockey? Yeah, for um, sure. Last year I took 30 days off to become a commercial Alaskan salmon fisherman in this on a salmon tendering boat. Um, no way, that's awesome. Yeah, I just yeah, because I was just like, I want to learn something different. I want to figure out where our yeah. food comes from, and that's not work. I usually do. I'm not running hydraulic cranes, right, on a boat. Yeah. My neighbors, and so they had some friends coming over from Alaska, and there was like a captain on one of these boats. Oh. And so he was just, he was, and he's like, I've been a captain for 40 years. You could tell just from the way he talks. He's like a big dude. He's just a captain. You know what I mean? Like captains just look like captains. And he goes, <laughs> he's just a hard-charging dude, right? He's just like a hard-charging dude. Very smart. And, and his name's yeah. Greg, and he goes, we, we were drinking, and I, I was like, yeah, I'd like to go do that. And um, I was half-joking. We don't half joke yeah. with these guys, right? There's no such thing as a half joke. They, they, like you said, they're all yeah. out. So he's like, well, if you're serious, I'm like, I'm serious. Can I, can I film it? He goes, yeah, it's fine. Eight months later, I get a call and he's like, you serious about that still? And I looked at my, um, you know, I looked at Catherine. And I was just like, 
Should I, you know, is it irresponsible for me to go do this thing, which I want to go do? And she, I'm running a startup and all this stuff, right? And she goes, you know, yeah. you're going to complain if you're up there. You're going to complain if you're down here and you're not up there. So it's like, I don't want to deal with it. Just go. I was like, yes. So, yeah, it was an amazing experience <laughs> because, um, like you said, yeah. just taking that time out to go learn something new. And, I've, and this ditch digger thing yeah. reminded me of that because probably the biggest thing I learned during this, and this is weird that I'm like 40 and it took me to this long to do, when I was 40 to learn this. This blue collar, white collar bullshit that we do is, I think, just total BS distinction. The people up there, you know, they don't have medical degrees or whatever, but they're really, really intelligent, extremely competent. And where they fall on this spectrum is, do you take pride in your work? Like, if you really care or meticulous and you take pride in your work, you're in the in crowd with them. If they don't tolerate sloppiness, it's because you die up there, right? Like sloppiness kills people. And I feel like yeah. that's the real, like the collar thing is stupid. I feel like that's the distinction we need to. So if like you're a ditch digger and you're doing the best job you can do and you're meticulous about it, I feel like that's more important now. You know, I, like I said, again, taking me years to realize this kind of thing. But why do we do that in our society? Why do we demonize just work, people who are working and doing a good job at it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I don't know. I think that's a really you you could that that's a real deep dive into exploring that. You know, I don't yeah. know if I if I'd be able to to do it any service trying to articulate it myself. But I I think it's a whole mind shift that we as a society have to undergo. And I think it's something that over time, over hundreds, thousands of years has just been a part of how we have been taught to look at things. So yeah. now I think what's happening is, you know, and I hate to use an overused term like awaken, but people are waking up and seeing that, you know what, um, to what you're describing, that blue collar person, the white collar person, the, the person that, that is a school teacher versus a, a professor, or we all are able to contribute significantly through our vision of who we want to be and understanding what our why is. And as long as we're contributing in a healthy manner, it should be respected across the board. And a lot of times I think what we do is we put each other into into these pay grades based on what our income is and we judge a person based on how much money they make and i can tell you you know i walked away from from mid six figure income to do what i'm doing and i'm not making a mid six figures anymore now mind you it's only yeah. a year but but my goal is to get but I, yeah. I i have become a bit of a minimalist i had the the mercedes and the bmws and the audis and the big house and the pool and i now I drive a pickup truck and a Harley and I'm happy. I'm happier than I've ever been. And I, I did the golf, the country club thing and the, the suits and everything every day. I don't have to shave every day. And I couldn't tell you the last time I put on a suit. Now, it's not that I don't or I wouldn't, but I stopped caring about what people wanted me to be. And I stopped, I started believing in who I want to be. And when so, I did that, there was this yeah. change. What happened you know, to get to that point? Because you seem like you were doing, I heard you talk about that before, that you left a really lucrative position. So what yeah. happened? It seems like you were kind of sailing up this ladder, as you said. So uh, five years ago, I was in a uh, head-on motorcycle accident. And, and you can't tell by looking at me, but I crushed the left side of my body. 
I broke all my ribs down the front, down the back, punctured my lung, ruptured my spleen, shattered my elbow, or ruptured it, came right out, shattered my uh, scapula, and shattered my ankle, and punctured my lung. So I was in rough shape. And I was given my last rites in the hospital when I went in. And then when I got to the hospital, my kidneys failed. So there's like, there's not a whole lot we could do. I was bleeding internally. I also had, they went in right away to try to stop all of the bleeding. And it was just to hang on and pray and hope that he gets through the night. And, and I did. And I spent about a week and a half in ICU. All told, I had eight or nine surgeries. And I had the doctors come and tell me that I was going to be in the hospital for at least 120 days. Now, I was the sole provider. I had just left the matrimonial home about two months earlier. This was this happened on August 22nd, uh, 2015. And I was on my bike coming to pick up my daughter because I was coaching her little soccer team. It was a Saturday morning bright and sunny warm day in Canada and I was a block away from the house where my wife my ex-wife and my kids were living because I had moved out and I got hit by a woman who was on her phone and so in the hospital you have a lot of time when you're laying there to think about your life and at first I was just trying to absorb what had happened to me and I had a nurse come to me after I got out of ICU and she said, you know, like I'm a big guy. At the time of my accident, I was about 240, I'm 6'3". And she said, she said, you know, we've seen people with less injuries than you not survive. You've been given a second chance at life. Don't waste it. The nurse said and I didn't you. know what that meant. The nurse said this to me. Yeah. And, and that saying always stuck with me. And I didn't really realize how much that meant to me at that time. But the longer I spent in the hospital and as I got out of ICU and I started my recovery, I owned that person that I used to be. I owned all of those, the finger pointing. I owned all of the, um, the damage that I had done through my myopic relationships. And I, I swore that the, the next half of my life was going to be used in purpose and not Why? for me. Why did all this, I mean... Don't get me wrong. I know the accident's traumatic and that obviously it's like you said, you have a lot of time to think, but I feel like there's probably, and I've seen it myself clinically. I've seen people who after they have a heart attack or something, they kind of go back right back to what they were doing before, whether it's a form of denial or difficulty changing or accepting things. What is it about this experience for you versus any other trauma patient where you like, no, I'm going to make a change. I'm not going to go just harder and, and drive the motorcycle faster or take another route next time. What, yeah. what was it that, were these, was something eating at you before that this was just the event? For me, it was a realization that I couldn't continue to live the life the way I was. I wasn't happy with myself. I was driving cars and living in houses and wearing clothes that I did not feel comfortable in. And I did it because I had this image of who I thought people wanted me to be. And I had done that as a hockey player and I'd done that as a corporate person. And, and it was this opportunity to say, I now want to actually be who I am. And I am not going to let somebody tell me what I should wear or how I should look or how I should act. And I did, you know, like it took me two years to build my loss about 50 pounds. And, you know, like Jeez. at the time I could put my hand all around, like right around my bicep and touch my fingers <laughs> when I got out of the hospital. Okay, so I I looked nothing like I do right now. So it was a commitment to health. I was not in a healthy place. 
I was drinking a lot. I was pushing myself too hard. My kids had no idea who I was because I was never home. And, you know, my marriage had failed. And it, it's never one person, but I know that a lot of it was my own doing. And whether we were meant to be together or not, it, it's irrelevant. It's the point that I now had an opportunity. I was given a second chance at life. And I wanted to do something that I could now look back on and leave a legacy. I want, want to leave the world a better place than than how I was brought into it. And so that that part that's part of my mission. So when I look back at at my life and the moments in my life where I wish that there was somebody that does what I do that I could talk to and share these experiences with and guide them through that process. I don't believe in the word teach. I believe in guide because my approach is by asking questions. I think we all instinctively know what drives us, but we don't know how to get it out of us. And, and so I'm, I really want to be a servant leader to the young athletes and, and young pros in the world because I think that it's something that's missing. We're so driven by money and success. And, and these guys today get paid so much money. But at some point, we know that sport is going to end. The game you're playing, and it's just a game is going to end and it could end because of a motorcycle accident and it could end because you know your career is just at the point where you can no longer be of value and that's a hard thing for people to understand i know a lot of guys that had to exit a game not because of an injury but because they weren't valuable anymore and when you're a pro athlete um, at any level there's a point where you're just a commodity you know and if you're not bringing value you're no good to them and what does that do to your mentality as a person? And I know a lot of guys that woke up the day after they were told they're not of value anymore, and they look around and they go, what the fuck do I do now? Yeah, they're not just they stats don't on the have an understanding. Card. Yeah. Yeah, they're just, yeah, big deal. You're just, and guess what? People just like they did me, hey, that's great. Tell me the story. Okay, now what value can you bring with this product, this service? How can you, how can you help me, Right. And if you yeah. don't understand who you are and what your why is, and you don't have a vision of how you can be gracious and be of service, then what's your purpose in the world? And so that's my perspective. So was it an aha moment? I think it was a combination of, of reflection and I need to be a better person. And how do you do that? You can never go wrong being gracious and helping others. And if you live your life every day thinking about those things, um, the rest will fall into place, right? And there's some neuroscience and woo-woo stuff we could talk about that, that I've taught myself um, that goes along with that. And, and there's science that supports all of that. But I didn't understand what any of that meant before. And now it's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Who can I have a conversation with today? Who can I help? Who can I talk to? Who can I help? How can I add value to somebody else's life? That's what I get up for. And I've got a great relationship with my kids and my ex-wife. We probably talk more now than we did when we were married. And I've got another person in my life and I'm thankful for that. I'm in a great place. Does my bank account reflect where it was when I wasn't happy? Well, here's the balance. Do you want to live a happy, fulfilled life or do you want to have a big bank account? Can you have both? I don't know. I think you can, and I think you can. I didn't know how to handle it back then, though. 
not having that experience or that knowledge, I think was, is something that the guys that do have the big bank now, if I can open up their mind to how to have both and plan for the future and be a better person and be grateful for the opportunities that you're given and not be in a position of comparing yourself to others, but just do the best you can do every day. You know, I I think that, that I'm, I'm seeing it with the young athletes that are 16, 17, 18 year old. They're going, wow, you know, like you're opening my mind to things and I'm seeing performance on the field, in the rink, at home. I'm reading books. I'm thinking about things that I never would think about normally. And that's a cool thing to see because you're planting a seed in a young individual. You can cover it up. And at some point that little sprout's going to come up and you're going to know that you are responsible for nurturing and watering that. Right. That's pretty neat. So you've come across looks like a set of processes and that's what you're involved in full time now. Can you talk more about so what is it that um, you spend most of your time now on? Because it seems like you found this, crafted it, learned about it from the existing literature and, and other examples, and you've, you've created your own kind of proprietary stuff. Can you talk about what, what that is? Sure. You look at it. It's not rocket science. You know, you take your, you know, you talk about a person's journey, right? So when I, when I look back on my journey, I can tell you all of the places and the points where they were learning opportunities that I could have applied just a, a different choice. And I, and I say this in my teachings now is we live on an axis between B and D. B is birth, D is death, and we are C, and C is a choice. And every Every day we're presented with hundreds of choices and we have a choice. Do I want to accept the call to do a call to do a podcast with Ravi or do I not? Do I, you know, want to walk out uh, outside and pick that garbage up off the street or let somebody else do it? You know, do I leave the bathroom and wipe the piss stains off the toilet for the next guy or, or just leave it for somebody else? Like these are all choices and everything that you choose to do, you can either leave your environment in a better place or as it was. And so this is the way that I look at things now. And do I have an opportunity to learn and grow every day? And can I share some of that with somebody who's willing to listen? Um, so, so those are the fundamentals. And then what I do without getting into a really deep dive on it, but I help young guy, young athletes realize, as I, as I stated, this sport you're playing isn't forever. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, and we'll use just hockey as an example. There's 1.4 million kids in North America that play minor hockey. 0.025% will get paid to play. Never mind making a career, will get paid to play. 0.025%. So it, it's ridiculous. It's and, and when you look yeah. at, if you took it, if you look at all the top pro sports and I'll throw hockey in as, as the fourth one, football, baseball, basketball, you guys down in the U S love all that stuff. And, and I'm going to throw hockey in cause I'm Canadian. The average professional lifespan is 4.85 years, 4.85 years. Take out the highs and the lows, right? Do a little Malcolm Gladwell there. That's crazy. So let's say you go to college and you're 21 and you turn pro at 21 or 22. By the time you're 27, you're done. Now what? You're still a young man. you got your whole life ahead of you. Maybe you were advised on what to do with your money. Most guys, a big percentage of pros, wind up finding themselves in bankruptcy or in a very futile state 
within two years after exiting their game. But if we can help instill a mind shift in the way that they approach their sport and life at a younger age to prepare them to be the best that they can be every day in their sport and know that, okay, this is over, I'm okay with that because I'm ready for my next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. A lot of times we get so focused on the finish line that we forget about enjoying the process. And so this is also part of my program. I help young guys understand that they have to, first of all, enjoy being in uncomfortable positions because the only place you're going to grow is through discomfort and enjoy the journey. Enjoy that because I have what's called the finish line syndrome is we focus on this finish line. We forget about all the little things that we have accomplished to get to that finish line. Once you get to that finish line, guess what? There's another finish line and another one. There is no end to this. Life is this journey of learning and experiences. And you may hit a goal, but there's no finish line. To me, the finish line is when they hammer the nail into the box and they say goodnight and throw some dirt on me. And even then, I think our souls are infinite. That's my beliefs. So what are you doing with your life while you're here? And and how are you impacting others? Is it positive? And, and what is your legacy going to be? So I help create those, I help athletes understand and think about those kind of things. So, you know, I have them do a life evaluation and we define their core values. Those are the first two or three meetings before we even talk about sports and how to get better. It's doing an internal dive into who they are as a person. And then and how, from there, we'll often, be able to work on, on those things. If I, I want to just explore the, the values piece because this, this keeps coming up. This is a common theme amongst high-performing people. And it seems initially to not be related, even though it obviously is. What do you find, when, especially when you're talking to the younger athletes, what do you find is the mismatch there? What are the common themes that seem to keep popping up when you're dealing with them and, and, and training their mindset with this, that they either don't aren't aware that they have these values or they're not, they've never really done this exercise before. Is it uncomfortable for them? Yes, it is uncomfortable. And, and I'll be honest where, where it starts is it, it starts with their family and their home life. And it's also a reflection of the coaches that are coaching them, right? We get so focused on win, win, win. And I'm not look at I'm I'm not a, a big advocate of the participant trophy because I think that there are lessons to be learned and in winning, but it's the approach on how you um, how you you teach kids and guide them about what winning means, right? And it, it has to come from within. It's not it's not somebody cracking a whip and telling you what to do. You have to want to win internally you have to have that burning fire that says i want to be better than the guy across from me not because the coach told me to but because i want to and when you figure out that then you become invincible right and so the disconnect is for me is what are your what are and it's a it's a difficult one because you're sometimes you're disqualifying or you're going against the way that their parents talk to them. And parents sometimes are the worst advisors of young athletes because they're trying to live vicariously through their kids. 
hockey parents i don't know any others hockey parents are off they're out of their rocker they're off their rockers most of them <laughs> they're screaming and yelling at their kids like when i was when i was coaching my son and even when i wasn't coaching i couldn't yeah. be near the other parents a, because really? of what I knew about the game, yeah, I'd go stand by myself. They thought I was a loner, and I'm okay with that. I'd go stand on the other side behind the glass because I just couldn't listen to it and it was so detracting from what they were trying to achieve on the ice. And then you got parents that are talking over the coaches, and it was very destructive. So it starts at that level. It starts with the associations, the parents, the coaches, how we talk to our kids, because they're still little um, sponges, you know, up until they're, you know, tw- young men, their frontal cortex, their frontal lobe doesn't develop till they're 21, 22. So they don't always comprehend things. So for me, those fundamentals are getting the kids to understand who they are and define what their values are. Understand, I, I teach them a little bit about um, mindset in my world includes your past, your history, your current physiology, and and that those things combined become your philosophy, you know, what you believe. And we know that the things that we believe are not always true, but we're conditioned to those things based on an emotion that's tied to an experience from our past that our, our reticular activating system calls forward when we encounter that again. And now it's okay to question it. And I use an example, a two-year-old boy, little boy or girl walks up to pet a dog because it's cute and it looks fluffy. The dog bites them. Well, they might grow up with this fear of dogs. But we know as adults who haven't been bitten, all dogs aren't bad. But that experience in that individual says dogs are bad. Why? Because our brain tells us, I pet a dog, the dog bit me, it hurt. And now all of a sudden our primal instincts keep kick in and go, well, we need to go into protective mode, right? So, so I'll go deep like that with examples that the kids could understand and have them challenge themselves and ask themselves questions. Well, why do I believe this? And why am I playing this game? Am I playing because dad wants me to play or am I playing because I really enjoy playing, right? And you can see it in the kids, the ones that want to be there, you, they don't need a whole lot of encouragement. You got to drag a kid to practice, and I get sometimes the six o'clock in the morning is not ideal, but most of the time you'll see in their effort and the way they talk and what they do. So if you can help bring that out in them, I, I think that you're able to start to mold a, a foundation for them that they can build on through sport and life. What else do you? What What are the next steps after that? So after you do this values. Um, after you bank their values, really make them self-examine because that's an amazing exercise and super powerful and super scary to do alone. Probably not eight. It's probably not possible to do it alone just because you need that yeah, objective no. measure. But where do you go from there? Well, if I'm working one-on-one, it's a little different than in a group environment. So in a one-on-one scenario, really it's I'll ask a lot of questions. What are you feeling this week? What went on at school? How did you feel in practice? I try to incorporate things like journaling and writing to me are, are, have become a big part of being able to contextualize your thoughts. And there's something about putting your thoughts on paper and looking at them and either adding or devaluing what they mean to you, depending on how they're affecting your mental state. 
So journaling is really good. Understanding, help having them write down things they can control and can't control. And then once they can see these things that they can't control and how they compound in their mind and how that 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 compounded negative thought relates to actions and words and then put that into perspective then they start to understand that side of it right then we'll incorporate different breathing techniques i'll talk to them about how to remain calm and centered right we we will use an example from victor frankl who was the um the neuroscientist who who survived the holocaust and he talks about that space between um stimulus and um reaction and living in that calm and being able to get a perfect example. I'm sure you watch the Super Bowl. You watch a guy like Tom Brady. He's being, he's got, he's being attacked from all over the place. And you look at him and he's just like, it's just like he's in total control. And he may be one of the greatest athletes for his ability to control the moment. And I tell the young guy, young athletes is control your emotion, control the moment. And and trust me, I was one of the first to overreact. So I can speak from experience and I can also speak to what it does now because I can take a clearer look at things. And, you know, I'll describe it kind of like a hurricane. If you ever look on on a map of when a hurricane is coming up through, you know, either the coast or whatever, and you see this fiery bright red where everything on the outside is being stimulated, but then in the middle, there's this calm blue center. Right. So if you can be that calm blue center in the middle of a hurricane, then you can choose the reaction to the stimulus around you. How important you do that by breathing. In addition to the breathing and this kind of mental exploration, though, um, I'm yeah. really interested to, to know about the physical training aspect only because you've been used to doing that since you were a teenager in a very methodical, systematic way physical training, weightlifting, cardio, all that stuff that we know is important for everybody. Um, But cardio, just for the record. No, I know. (laughs) Me too. Right. Like, yeah, it it amazes me. um, You know, I'm a six foot one Indian guy. Like I'm a larger of of someone from South Asian descent. It's like a little bit of a bigger person. And that's, that's because I'm from the Midwest. So we just eat a lot. Right. (laughs) It's like, this this makes a difference. Nutrition makes a difference in your size. Um, But, um, so about the bigger thing, like when I get my pulmonary function testing done, they always go, you have abnormally small lungs, Dr. Quire. I'm like, no, I don't. Just your machine wasn't standardized to people my, my height. So your readings are, you know, it's like yeah. we, your sample size is wrong. What's funny is it's like, this is like the problem, right? This is one of the problems in all of life right now. Um, for, for people living in the Western societies, it's this issue of chronic disease, health, mindset. So this kind of coaching that you're doing, my I'm internally thinking how do we apply this not just to athletes how do we apply this approach to mindset and physicality and make it someone's priority how do we expand this to a majority of our population i can't think of a human being that doesn't benefit from this kind of the exercises that you've been talking about yeah no listen if i could figure that out and we can bottle it we can make a whole lot of money but i think what it, it, it comes down to is that it's that c um, that we live on that axis between B and D, their choices. We all have choices, right? And so what you're talking about is creating a mind shift in a population that right now, and, and Canada's part of that, you know, North America, we're, we're one of the 
most unhealthiest populations, it's because we have become accustomed to this immediate need for satisfaction, right? Whether it's through fast food, and that's a whole big discussion about eating habits and how we push ourselves to work and what these expectations are. And sometimes it takes a life-threatening disease or incident to have that aha moment and or a doctor looking at you and say, you know what, if you continue to put that cheeseburger in your mouth, you're going to not see your daughter graduate. And and sometimes that type of reality is what is needed. You know, and I think by having conversations like this and the ones that are happening on Clubhouse and being able to expose more people to the options that they have, healthier options, the way that they think, and an understanding of that your thoughts become your words, become your actions. Reading a simple book like The Four Agreements by by Don Miguel Ruiz, simple, simple. Those kind of things will start to open up opportunities for people to say, I want to live a healthier life. I want to be a better person. And I want to leave a legacy for the people that come behind me. And I don't know if the population thinks that way, right? And it could be because of, you know, the environment they're brought up in. Um, it, you know, so that's a much bigger, deeper discussion. Uh, but I think we're getting to a point where we're starting to realize that we are going to have to make changes if we want to survive as a society, to be good to each other, to be a good person. And what does that mean? I could take it in so many different directions. I don't know if there's there's a just a, a singular answer for something like that. That's a that's a whole what other kind podcast. Of- what kind of results have you been seeing with the athletes that you've been coaching this way? Yeah, no. So I'm seeing I'm seeing an increase in performance, in self-confidence, in um, their ability to communicate both at home and with coaches. Um, we're seeing an increase in their grades. We're seeing efficiencies in time management. There's a, a whole bunch of self-esteem issues that are being brought out. Kids are becoming now more open and vulnerable about the things that are going on up in here and be and they're willing to talk about them rather than to let them fester. We know that doesn't do any good. We're seeing an increase just when you couple nutrition and physical training with the mindset. To me, those are the, the three pillars. We're starting to create a more uh, healthier individual who hopefully will take that to the next generation and the next generation and and influence the people around them. Uh, That's the the best thing I think that we can do, right, is is try and positively influence the people around us. Yeah. And and do you feel like these kind of techniques need to just be instilled at a more institutional level? I mean, we're not formally taught this at schools. Like you, you mentioned, the coaches and parents don't are all well-intentioned, but don't necessarily know or trained how to engage in tactics like this to help kids through these these moments. Do you feel like we need to left-shift this and go more upstream and put this formally oh, into I, education? Uh, yeah, I, 
I would, um, yeah, I totally think that there, there's something that needs to be done at the school level. I think that, you know, outside of private schools, the public school system needs a complete overhaul. I see it. I've got two teenagers. So, you know, and, and COVID has been an eye opener because now I can see what they're working on because they're sitting in front of their screens and their tablets all day. And I'm watching teachers just kind of go through the motion. And, and I get it. It's a learning experience for everybody. You know, they, they're not used to teaching to a screen and to kids that they can't control. But, but even then, it's the curriculum. Are, are we teaching them? Or are the kids actually learning? And if you go back and if you read Jim Quick's book on Limitless, he talks about that a lot, about learning to learn. I think we teach kids how to memorize, but we're not actually teaching them to learn. Those are two very different things. And then if you can put thought process, the way they think and the way they articulate and the way that they speak, and then the effort and the action that goes in behind that, to me, that's something that should automatically be brought into the curriculum. And if you can do that, now you're starting to, to create a major shift in, in the, 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 the next wave of generations. Rob, what, what, you, what impact have you seen COVID, the isolation that's come along with it, the stress of, of adapting new models of working and learning? Well, how has that impacted your business and what you're working now with Mindset Body Bank? And well, look, I I believe in looking for a silver lining, and I think that what it has done is it's it, it has woken up people. Um, I think what it's done from a from a, a cultural perspective is to realize that perhaps this environment of having everybody in one place isn't always necessarily the most efficient or effective way. I think that there are still ways that, that you know, we can leverage the technology we have to continue to, to produce positive results in the workforce. I think that from my particular um, position, what it's allowed me to do is, is get creative on the programs that I'm able to offer. Um, and um, I can now duplicate myself more frequently than having to travel to a rink or a field and you know you see you think about the travel time and then the time spent there and then the follow-up don't get me wrong i'm still all about in person because there's a bunch of intangibles that you can get um, but if you can garner the attention over zoom and that's part of the downside of this is kids are zoomed out by the time i get to them sometimes in the late afternoons yeah and evenings so you're dealing with that, but the one, but but it, we've had to all become creative in how we how we go about working. Look at you and I. Probably 20 years ago, would not even be having this conversation if it wasn't for yeah. technology. And, so I think yeah. it's how we administer it. Well, and it's yeah. Going forward, it's interesting to see you talk about where you are now. So you still you're still riding bikes though. I'm still riding my story. Yeah, as a no, fellow good. motorcyclist, I can, I can, and, and who's yeah, gotten yeah. in an accident. I, I mean, I can, I've, I, you know, I've dropped the bike. Uh, and I, so I know what it's like a little bit, um, kind of yeah. really roughed up my hands. The one day I always wear armor, I always wear everything except the one day I didn't wear gloves. And, um, of course that one is, that's the day yeah. it's going to happen. Right? Anyway, yeah. but, um, but you're still riding now. I'm so guessing, like, I'm guessing you ride one of those, uh, one of those fast bikes. No. No, I actually, you know what? No, you say that. I actually don't like those bikes. I don't think they're comfortable. Well, I'm much more of a, I have a, I have a Triumph Speed Triple. So okay. it's it's a oh, cool wow. bike. Cool. It's a very different yeah. kind of bike, 
But I'm the kind yeah. of guy I want a bike where my where I can just sit there and like ride from SoCal to Montana, you know, like a Victory okay. or like a Harley oh, or something that's just a little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Triumph okay. makes a big cruiser like that. It's like that big 2.3 yeah, liter. It's insane, right? So I like that kind of thing. It's just it's more fun. Good. So yeah, what is life like now? Life is um, life is interesting. I, I wake up. I have a. I become a, a glutton to routine and schedule. I think what it does for me is it keeps me focused on the things that I have to do. I am become a very humbled, grateful person. I give time to my parents, which are aging. I make sure that my kids get my time when appropriately every day. Staying home, I, I have a passion for cooking. So I love to cook. So I always make sure that there's healthy food and fresh food and dad's cooking and probably spoil them a little bit to that point. But, but it's okay because I find cooking a release for me. So when I walk away from the computer and I go into the kitchen, a lot of times my girlfriend and my kids might say, hey, can I help you? And I'm like, no, you guys just sit there. I enjoy doing this. It's a relaxation for me. I'm an, I've become my father. I used to say to my dad, God, why do you get up so early in the morning? And I've become that guy. So now I, I, we all do I wake up at sometime between 4.30 and 5 o'clock without an alarm. I go through... Uh, a little visualization. I do about 10 or 15 minutes of meditation. I put my feet on the floor and my old body needs a, a little stretch before I start my day. So you know, I rub the work, the kinks out and, and then I make a coffee and I do some reading. You know, I, I have a process before I just jump into my work world. Whereas before I used to jump out of bed and race to an airport and get on the plane and work on the plane. And so I actually structure time for myself every morning. And, and I know it may sound selfish, but by doing that first thing in the morning, I'm able to give more of myself to the people that need me later, if that makes sense. I go to the gym. I be, become a major fitness freak, if you will. I'm obsessed with biohacking and understanding the brain and what I can do to my body. And I want to live to like I'm 120 if I can. You know, and what do you and, think uh, about all the technologies coming out, like things, not just the wearables and tracking devices, but things like home genomics tests, microbiome, the ability to get your own lab results. How do you feel about that data, all that stuff that used to be hidden behind a prescription pad or a computer in a doctor's office? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's like anything else. I, de I guess it depends on on the hands that it falls into. For me, I'm very intrigued by it. So I am able to take a... Um, a neutral look at those things and and decipher is it a positive or a negative for me. I can't make that decision for somebody else. I can see how it could create panic in the community if you don't know what you're doing or how to approach it. But I think that their data is a, a fantastic thing and information is very valuable yeah. when you know what to do with it. And yeah. so if you've got if you are willing to do the research and understand what the markers mean and how you can effectively change them positively and know that what's good for you is may not be good for me and filter that, that one size doesn't fit all and that there is no blue pill or red pill that's going to cure me, but I'm going to be able to subjectively look at this data and apply it to my person, then I think it's great. The challenge is getting everybody to think that way and use it yeah. properly. 
So Rob, what is your major project now? Is your focus mostly professionally on evolving your coaching techniques and mindset body fitness? What do you need to go 100x? What's your next step? My next step is, so my, what I call my BHAG, my big, hairy, aggressive goal one day is to have a consulting or an institute, a big physical facility. And I would love to incorporate not only the mindset training, but physical fitness. I'd like the idea of what you were talking about, some of the the genome testing and explore some biohacking. And I'd like to be able to take athletes or individuals in there and help walk them through, you know, this process of understanding who they are, what their body is, what they can do with their body, how to extend their life and educate them on how to do that and become non-reliant on some of the the unhealthy practices that are out there to me that would be the ultimate and be able to work with young athletes and young minds and and watch them make something of themselves that's the big long-term goal that's a great goal and that makes a lot of sense i really like that you're you know, it's not just the the people our age, right? That you're that you really want to work with. It's the people in that very formative section of their lives, where, like you said, they lack lack guidance. When you first were talking to the, earlier in the conversation about breaking your hand, and I was like, yeah, I would have broken my hand on myself if I could see myself at 18, 19, right? I'd be like, punch my right. punch that kid in the face and be like, listen, you got you know these these things you learn, and and when you get older, you just think, well, that was a preventable situation. I'm never sure if it's something that the, whether the interception would have been important or not. I can never tell. It's like if, if I could have taken yeah. the time, you know, the DeLorean back and said, hey, you know, you're going to do this. I don't know if I would have been in a yeah. place to even accept it. I don't know. That's like one of the big unknowns. Like how much of the information would have, would, have, you know, would have helped me turn right when I turned left versus, no, I just needed to go through and step on those mines. That's one of those big unknowns yeah. in life, right? Um, I think, I, I, you know, I, it's a great, it's a great, great question. And I thought about that, right? Because... I'm here today sitting talking to you because of all those experiences, right? Yeah. Um, and I've got a 17-year-old son. And trust me, there was an example of somebody who doesn't listen to anything that I say. It's this kid. But it, And I say, how can I affect so many other young athletes? And you live in under my roof. But you just, and it's not that he's not listening. And I have, this is where as a parent, I have to step back and say, yeah. you know what? I can tell you and I can advise you and I can give you the ability to make that decision, but you still have to make the decision. And if you choose A or B, you got to live with that. And and I have to tell myself, let them experience it. You know, let them experience it because it's those experiences that are going to shape us. And, it, you know, to your point, would you have listened? I probably wouldn't have either, but there were points and I'm not trying to, to um, deflect those things from happening. But what I would do were those points where I was really down and in a dark place and wishing yeah. I had somebody to talk to. That's when I would want to appear to my younger self and say, you know what? It's okay. You're going to make it. This is how you can pull yourself out of it. Because there were some dark times. That day you when know, you had to go in, back on the bus my, and you weren't my, in the lineup. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just those are the kind of decisions that could have changed, you know, one way or another, but or at least given you a better perception of yourself 
to, to make a better decision in that moment and, and learn to react from here, not from your heart sometimes. This is this has been really helpful to understand what you're doing and the impact you're making in the in the segment of the population that you're really focusing on right now. It's been amazing. And um, I'm always fascinated by people who are athletes because at some level, I feel like you're ahead of the rest of us because you've sharpened a set of knives from a very early age that you can go rely on now, whereas I think a lot of us um, need to need to get after that you know, kind of later in our life. It's funny, uh, culturally, Indian people who are in the United States, actually in India too, we really need to hone in on this a little more. I think it's, it's the thing is all the stuff in the, the old Indian mythology always ends up being right. The stuff that you, you ignore your parents when they tell you to do stuff, like my mom's like, you know, you should do yoga and the meditation and all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, whatever. I'm not gonna stretch and breathe, okay? That's, you know, yeah. when you're like 12 or 13 yeah, or 14, yeah. your mom, your Indian mom tells you this, you're like, that's all BS, whatever. But it ends up they were right, you know, so they were onto yeah. something back then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so part of that I, is I exercise. so many, so many positive practices that come out of the uh, the old eastern cultures in yeah. the indian culture and, and eastern yeah. medicine so well this has been an amazing conversation uh and thanks for letting me in on on your world and your journey because it is one that is inspiring how can people find you and what you're doing right now yeah um so if you just do a google search for mindset body bank that's the name of my website it's my instagram i don't do a lot on twitter um and you can find me there um, those are the best places to reach out to my content um, i got an ebook that i wrote that you can get on my website i came up with my 21 secrets for for creating um, some momentum for 2021. Still got lots of time to implement that. You can also get that on my website. Uh, and I try and put out content weekly, um, you know, daily and weekly on my Instagram. And I have a podcast also called Mindset Body Bank. That's great, Rob. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and helping to educate me and everyone else listening so we can be involved in this, in this journey of improvement. Ravi, I, uh, I, I am uh, flattered and, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to spread the word. I wish you continued success.